This is a Bloody Vegans production. I've been feeling tired. I don't feel normal. A branch handed me a coffee bean. I entered into a portal. They said, what you consume is your medicine. Stop treating symptoms. Find the cure for your betterment. Here's some marshmallow for that cough and broccoli for the lungs. And some kale for those prime times you smoked when you were young. Here's some turmeric for that swelling and inflammation. Hello, my name is Jim. This is my podcast, The Bloody Vegans. You're very welcome to it. Each week I'll be travelling ever deeper into the world of veganism, discovering along the way a multitude of viewpoints from the political and ethical to the practical. I'll be doing this through a series of conversations, each aiming to further illuminate my understanding and hopefully yours of all things plant-centric. And this week is no different. Uh, This week is episode 123, and I checked that this week, um, and I believe that is correct. Um, Not including, obviously, bonus episodes. I think it's 128 if you include bonus episodes, something like that. Somebody might correct me. Um, But episode 123 of the uh, official podcasts, if you like. And this week, I was lucky enough to chat with the co-founder of Ashland Creek Press, uh, who are a vegan-owned boutique publisher dedicated to publishing books with a worldview, some environmental, uh, some ethical, some vegan-minded, and really interestingly, not just non-fiction. Often when we talk environmental, when we talk vegan uh, in the literature space, we're talking about non-fiction, very factual, um, and there's a there's a fantastic place for a lot of those books. A lot of those kind of uh, pieces of literature helped many of us, just like uh, the, the documentaries and films that are so widely publicised. Much of that literature has helped us along our journeys if we're already vegan or is helping us if we're kind of transitioning. Um, but what's really interesting about Ashton Creek Press is they're very focused on um, fiction, fiction writing. Um, and we talk all sorts of things about the place of fiction in any kind of uh, movement, but particularly the vegan movement. We talk about humour within that fiction um, and and the kind of role that those things play uh, when you are trying to make a, a move in, in society, if you like. I personally found the, the chat fascinating. I hope, hope you do too. Um, so we're going to be chatting with Midge in just a second, but a couple of bits of admin to tell you about. The first thing to tell you about is is that this episode of the Bloody Vegans podcast is brought to you by Veg1, the nutritional vitamin and mineral supplement designed for vegans by vegans, launched by the Vegan Society, the OG in the game, uh, back in 2005. Um, I mean, I don't know about any of you folks, but when I came to veganism, uh, one of the first places that I looked for information um, for kind of that trusted resource was the Vegan Society. As I mentioned, it's one of the oldest names in the kind of in the game in terms of uh, formal organisation back in 1944, I think it was, I founded. Um, and so, you know, we, when we transition into veganism, we start to look at, um, you know, where are we getting our nutrition right? That's exactly where I started. Um, and I found Veg One pretty early on and have, and have not really stopped taking it on a daily basis ever since. So um, it's a bit of a personal recommendation for me. So it feels, feels very comfortable uh, talking about how good Veg One is. Um, there's, there's loads of things that are great about it, lots of wonderful talking points. But I want to just... One particular thing of note recently that has impressed me about Veg One is the move. Uh, it was only in 2021, but the move from plastic packaging to um, the plastic-free um, kind of metal. I think it's aluminium, but somebody at the Vegan Society will correct me. Um, but it's a, a, a reusable kind of pot. 
and reusable by three and a half year olds. I can I can testify. Uh, my little boy has currently got a Veg One pot filled with crayons on his um, on his desk. So uh, <laughs> just one of the many benefits, of course. Probably not the one to lead with, not a key one. Uh, but still, it's pretty important that it's plastic-free. Um, let's not do that any disservice. Um, aside from being plastic-free, um, it's just £12.70 for six months' worth of this kind of daily supplement. And in that, you're getting all kinds of different uh, nutritional benefits from B12, D3, iodine, selenium, B2, B6, folic acid, all of the ones, or at least many of the ones, that when you move into veganism everybody tells you you need to uh, you need to watch out for so head over to the vegan society search for veg one and you can find out all you need to know about that there you go this episode brought to you by veg one uh, let's move on shall we um, other bits of admin if you like the bloody vegans podcast and you would like to support it there are a number of ways to do so if you're an apple Podcasts uh, subscriber just head over to apple Podcasts, and for just 99 pence a month you can help keep the bloody vegans podcast on the virtual airwaves as it were um so do head over and do that that also entitles you to early access to episodes and things like that which is very nice indeed if you're that way uh, inclined um and if you don't want to spend any money at all and who could blame you you've already spent enough of your time being here and i thank you very much for that uh, if you head to your podcast provider of choice usually they have some kind of review system leave a five-star review or however many stars they give Give the most you can. Um, that really, really helps. Uh, helps push the uh, the podcast in terms of the you know the various shadowy algorithms that help people find po- find podcasts. And so um, that will be a tremendous support to the show indeed. Um, you can also buy merchandise over on bloodyveganspodcast.co.uk, thebloodyveganspodcast.co.uk. Um, and that's enough. That's enough touting of wares from me. I think. Let's get onto the matter in hand. Vegan publishing. This is pretty exciting conversation so let's get on with it um here's a conversation between me and midge raymond the co-founder of ashland creek press i've been feeling tired i don't feel normal a branch handed me a coffee bean i entered into a portal they said what you consume is your medicine stop treating symptoms find the cure for your betterment here's some marshmallow for the cough and broccoli for the lungs and some kale for those prime times you smoked when you were young Awesome. So, Midget, it'd be great to get started with a little bit of your personal journey into the world of veganism. What What's brought you here? Well, it's a long and interesting journey. And actually, my journey into veganism is kind of my journey into Ashland Creek Press as well. And when I say my, I should say our. Uh, my partner, John Yunker, couldn't join us today, but he's, uh, he's my partner in life and my partner in Ashland Creek Press. And we both, we've been on this journey together for a really long time. And it all really started, um, I would say, when we went on a wildlife expedition to Antarctica way back in 2004. So that journey, um, not only did it lead to, I, I came home and immediately wrote a short story, which about 10 years later became my novel, My Last Continent. He came home and wrote a novel, The Tourist Trail. But most important, we came back with this sense that you could travel to the most remote place on the planet and realize that everything we do in the Northern hemisphere affects what goes on in the Southern hemisphere. And that was a really big awakening in terms of, you know, how we're treating the planet and climate change. And again, this was 2004. So it was before climate change was talked about quite as much as it was, as it is today. And before it became such a 
you know, major, major issue. I mean, it always was. It has been since the 70s, honestly. But it really got on our radar Mm. when we did that. And the other thing that got on our radar was our use of animals for food. And in particular, we learned a lot about the marine mammals in Antarctica. Penguins, especially, they are just like the poster children of Antarctica. (laughs) And they we just came back unable to eat fish anymore because it felt like taking food from their mouths, which essentially it is. So the animals in Antarctica, their biggest problems, well, there are three, um, pollution, climate change, and overfishing. So we came back from that trip done with eating seafood. And then we started wondering why we're eating other animals. And I have never eaten animals a lot in my life. I just don't I just never really enjoyed meat. But after this trip, I started wondering, why am I still doing this? It was just such a habit. I was raised to finish what's on my plate. And so it never really occurred to me to be vegetarian. But after this journey, you know, I I went along that road um, and just stopped eating meat. Um, In the meantime, John had gone to an animal rights conference to research his book, The Tourist Trail. And he called me from that conference. I'll never forget that. I'd been vegetarian for a while. He He wasn't there yet. But we ate vegetarian at home because, you know, that's how we cooked. And then he just, he called and said, I'm done. I'm out. Mm -hmm. No more meat. And from there, we sort of, you know, did more research, learned that why are we eating eggs and cheese if we're not eating animals? The animal agriculture industry is, is so harmful when it comes to eggs and dairy. So it took a while to give up that last bite of cheese, but eventually we got there. And... Ashland Creek Press came of that because when John wrote his novel, he he sent it out, he got an agent and sent it out into the world at a time when environmental fiction wasn't a thing Mm. there. And and the feedback that that he and his agent got was, you know, we don't know how to market this. We don't know who the audience for this is. Uh, The Tourist Trail is an eco thriller, you might say. Mm. So, and it's set in Antarctica. Um, one of the main characters was inspired by Paul Watson, who you interviewed on your yeah. podcast, a you know, anti-whaling activist. It's a completely fictional character, I should add. But, you know, <laughs> he's a hero mm. um, to us. And he, he, you know, just doing what he does makes for a great story and, and great characters. So it's really – but the, the greater publishing world couldn't find a, an audience for that or didn't think there was one. So we decided to self-publish it. And we had both worked in publishing for many years. So we had, you know, all the the knowledge, all the skills that we needed, or we knew how to get them, for example, the book design, you know, and at the time, publishing was evolving quite a lot so that it was easy. There were things like print on demand technology Mm -hmm. that made it possible Mm -hmm. to publish a book without printing 10,000 copies, you know, and going into that expense. So, so we put it out there. And at the time, we also thought, well, if there's no market for John's environmental novel, or if there aren't publishers willing to create a market for it or who don't believe there's a market for it, I wonder if there are other authors out there who might have books that need homes. So we sort of, um, you know, put it out there to accept submissions and got a lot of amazing books, started publishing them. And this was in 2011. So we just celebrated last year our 10-year anniversary of Ashland Creek Press, and we're still going. Wow. So, so our, our path to veganism and our path to publishing was very much the same. And though we've published, we started out publishing environmental books of all types, it's really amazing how the big five, if you will, it's what we call them in the States, the big five publishers, they've really caught up to environmental writing. And there's a lot more of it coming out from the big presses. 
However, there's a lot less animal writing, very little vegan fiction, if you will, from the big publishers still. So that's where we're leaning towards. So we're sort of evolving too. Now that climate fiction and, and you know, eco-fiction can find homes, now that these writers have more opportunity in the greater, larger publishing world, as a small press, we're focusing more on the animal aspects and, the, and veganism and, and how animals fit into the environmental and climate change issues that we're all facing. 100%. I, I want to there's loads I want to get into there, but just because you've just mentioned it, I want to ask a question about a specific point there. You mentioned that the major five and them not necessarily, uh, not necessarily wanting to get involved in the kind of the direct square on the square on the head kind of veganism, if you like, or, or, or fiction related to animal activism, that kind of thing. Where do you think that comes from? Is that, is that still a kind of fear of the, the word veganism about not wanting to pigeonhole themselves or not wanting to alienate, you know, potential sponsors? What, where does that come from? You know, I wish I had a good answer for you, Jim, because <laughs> it's hard to know. It's, um, so my, my book, My Last Continent, was published by a mainstream publisher. So this, I finished that book finally, and um, it came out in 2016, which was um, almost you know, like maybe, maybe about six years after John's book came out. So a lot happened in that time. You know, our books are very, very different, but they still have to do with Antarctica. They still have to do with penguins. They still have to do with climate change. They both have vegan characters. So a lot changed from when John was shopping his book around to when mine got published by um, an imprint of Simon & Schuster. So, so that's how quickly it's all evolving, which is great. But that said, um, I did, you know, I, I edited out some stuff that was, I, my vegan message was very subtle in that book. And I think that my, my guess is that it's a tough issue for a lot of readers to handle. And for the same reason that, you know, when you go out with non-vegans and they don't really want to hear, they're a little uncomfortable about why you're vegan, because, you know, it forces, as, as we learned, you know, during our process, when you think about what you're doing to animals by eating them, it's really hard to take. And, you know, as many vegans will say, my only regret is that I didn't do it sooner because I couldn't believe I did that for so long without even thinking about it. Because once you know what you know, it's impossible not to know it and it's impossible not to eat compassionately. And I think But I think if you're not there yet or if you're in that process or you're faced with these realities, it's really, really difficult. And it's difficult for everyone's human. It's difficult for agents. It's difficult for editors and and readers. So because there are plenty of vegan cookbooks out there, that is not an issue. We can Mm. find plenty of those. And that's about food. That's about eating. That's about choice, healthy choices. But if you're reading a, a novel or if you're reading nonfiction about the reasons we should all be vegan and a lot of it has to do, we see in these stories, the abuse um, and the penguins who are starving because we're fishing their oceans for ourselves. That kind of thing is really difficult. That's what I imagine is going on. But I also know that publishing follows trends and um, environmental writing is trendy now. And that's an amazing thing. It's a beautiful thing. And one day we hope that 
you know, more animal protection related literature is, is trending. And, um, and there's plenty of nonfiction out there and we see a little bit of fiction as well, but not to the extent that I think we really need to, to awaken the world to what we need to do because we can't save the planet without saving the animals. And there's so many ways to do that from not fishing from our oceans to getting rid of animal agriculture, if not altogether, which I would love just scaling it way, way down um, to where animals are no longer suffering so much and to where they don't, we don't have to raise our rainforest, that kind of thing. Yeah. The, you, you've mentioned someone else. Sorry, you're sparking so many like, ideas, <laughs> thoughts in my mind. And I've, I've got another another question based on something that you just said, and it's, it's really interesting to me. Um, and and I'm reflecting as I'm talking about some of the things that I, or some of the, the literature I've read, um, and some of the stuff, particularly early on, that got me into it, and, and some of the stuff that I, I still read now, you know, as a point of interest and so on. Um, and and I must say, there's there's a lot more, a lot more nonfiction, and and you know, a lot more environmentally based nonfiction where the veganism is a Trojan horse in if it's there at all, uh, that kind of stuff in the at least in the environmental literature. Do you think moving the needle when it comes to fiction? Is is a critical part of this because I'm just thinking about and I'm trying to join lots of probably many arbitrary dots here. I don't know, but uh, I'm thinking about things like you know in the in the film world, like Don't Look Up, for example, the the latest film has had a big ripple and a and a big effect. I'm thinking about like documentary films, um, not so much fiction, but the, that film space where there's a story, where there's a narrative, sea uh, spiracy, cow spiracy, these kind of things. They've had this massive ripple. How crucial do you think the role of fiction is in in kind of moving the the overall population's viewpoint of veganism and 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 therefore putting an end to animal agriculture and all the things we'd love to see? I think that's a great question, and I think it's absolutely crucial. I think, and I am biased. I say this as a small <laughs> press publisher. I say this as a fiction writer and as a voracious reader, but. I think fiction is so powerful, and I think it's powerful in ways that nonfiction, nonfiction is very powerful too, but I think the tough thing about nonfiction and even documentaries mm. is that it presents realities in such a way that it can be difficult. You yeah. know, it can be depressing to learn this in, in, in these factual ways. And all the good documentaries, as they mentioned, Seaspiracy and mm. Cowspiracy, they are amazing films and they tell good stories. But um, being confronted with these realities, with these realities in a more subtle way is what fiction does very well. And films like Don't Look Up, that, you know, a satire like that mm. can really draw you in through its characters and its story and its humor. But then you sit, it, it sits with you for a long time yeah. afterwards and you think about it and it sinks in in a different way. So I think fiction is hugely powerful and has that ability to open hearts and minds in ways that the um, nonfiction and documentaries can't do or or I think they can do it if people will see them. But I know that and, and this is even with me who I'm very interested in all of this stuff, but I do shy away from some of the nonfiction and I do shy mm. away from some of the documentaries because they, you know, they're, they, I get a little depressed. It's yeah. hard to to stay optimistic sometimes. There's a lot going on in our world that's a challenge. Um, but I'm always drawn into a good story. I mean, a hundred percent of the time. Whereas maybe seventy five percent of the time, I'll watch a documentary on something because I care about the issues. But a story will always pull me in. And 
it being fictional, I think helps give you that bit of distance as a reader or a viewer that softens it a little bit, Mm. but it still sticks with you. And it might stick with you even more because you fall in love with characters. Um, You laugh, you know, a film like Don't Look Up. um, It reminds me of a book that we have coming out in February, which is called My Days of Dark Green Euphoria. And it's by an author, debut author, um, Athena Copenhaver. She does a brilliant job, just like Don't Look Up, in you know, finding humor in the horrors that we're facing Mm. as a planet today. It's about a woman, a millennial woman who is just living the purest life she can. She tries not to consume anything. She hasn't been on a plane in forever. She eats out of dumpsters because it's more sustainable than buying food. You know, all this stuff that she does. And then she meets her mother, um, her boyfriend's mother, who is the opposite. She drives a giant car, smokes cigarettes, eats meat, just doesn't care about her carbon footprint at all. And um, this character kind of falls off the wagon into this world where she doesn't have to worry, where all of a sudden, you know, like she doesn't have to worry about what she eats or what she wears or how she lives in the world. And it's such a relief that she just kind of goes off the deep end and then eventually sort of finds a balance. But it's a great story. And she tackles all these issues, you know, climate change, animal abuse, you know, um, social justice, she tackles all of this in a way that's humorous and really endearing and really fun, which it sounds impossible to do, but she has pulled it off in this book. And that launches in February. We're really excited about it. And it's interesting, the timing with Don't Look Up, because I feel like the world is ready to see these issues in a way where we can relax a little, we can still absorb everything, but it's not quite as intense because you have to laugh sometimes in life. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you can't have that little bit of escape, it's it can be difficult. So I think fiction, whether it's film or or novels, really provides that and and that people are ready for it and they welcome it. That's a really interesting point as as well, actually, about humor. I, I, I definitely think there's um there's a space for it. And and you know, we talked about Donut Cup and obviously the, the new book coming out there, I mean, just sounds like Sounds fantastic, actually. To be honest, what a great premise for a for a for a book, um, and and that humour element, I think you know, could be potentially critical. So I'll ask a similar question to the the one about fiction, but but squarely about humour. Like, do, do you think again that the humour aspect is is a specific almost requirement for us to kind of move things forward? Do do you think in in some ways that the the kind of the vegan narrative hasn't got enough of that in it? I do, actually. And um, I wish John could join us. He really strongly believes that. And he writes fiction. He writes, um, he's written novels. He's written short stories. He also writes plays. And his plays in particular use humor. He loves making fun of vegans, the vegan mm. movement, because that's a good way to draw people in. I think that, unfortunately, to many other people who are non-vegan, you know, vegans can get sort of a bad rap because... Mm. You know, people think, oh, you're so pure, or they, you know, they think we're no fun, or, you know, they think we eat really boring stuff, and all of which is completely untrue. But, you know, John likes to play with that in his writing. And he has written several plays that just sort of like poke fun at veganism and have a lot of fun with it. But meanwhile, the issues are there and he gets them across and making people laugh at the same time is a great way to draw people in. You know, I think, you know, as vegans, we can laugh at ourselves. I think we should all be able to laugh Mm -hmm. at ourselves. We kind of have to. And um, so, but especially is helpful for drawing in people who don't know much about veganism or who just like, 
you know, they see vegans in a humorous light for the first time. Because I think sometimes we have this reputation as being, you know, humorless people who just eat tofu and have sad lives, you know. And so I think having humor in um, any context is, is great fun and um, really, you know, opens a lot of doors. I agree. I, I think sometimes we impose that upon each other sometimes within the vegan community there's yeah. there's a bit of almost um and I actually I, I do feel it to some extent uh you know personally and I, I'd sort of try and check myself on it where you sort of feel a little bit like you know am I am I being disrespectful to the animals to the planet by not being solemn about this subject the whole time because I mm-hmm. think we you know, as we talked about with non-fiction we immerse ourselves in the the realities, the horrors of, of, of whether it be the climate situation, whether it be um, the, the truth about animal agriculture, these kind of things, we immerse ourselves in it. And so it can feel a little bit like, you know, glib, disrespectful to be humorous on it and, and on, on the subject. I, I do think sometimes that, that gets us in a bit of a trap there in, in terms of we're not then reaching across the, the you know, the, the divide, if you like, we're not, we're not, able to open up if we're not able to be a bit more free loose laugh at our, our, ourselves etc with, with particularly with non-vegan folks I, I think it's a really powerful point you make um more just amusing than a question <laughs> no i i agree with you it is you know knowing what we all know as vegans um it is it is difficult to laugh sometimes because it is very serious and it's also it is hard to be glib about it because, you know, sometimes among non-vegans, I just feel like this urgency for everyone to go vegan. And I just, it's, it can be really difficult to be among people who are eating animals, um, eating dairy or eggs. It's, it's difficult, you know, it's, it's a form of violence that's right in front of you. And, um, but to cut those people out of our lives does a disservice to the animals. And Mm. I think that, I think that the way I, you know, justify writing using humor or, or publishing humor is that it draws more people to the yeah. realities and hopefully that'll change minds. But I do think that's true. We should never lose sight of that serious element. Why are we doing this? And that's always a big part of it. But I think everyone's journey is just a, you know, I, John went vegan overnight or vegetarian overnight, stopped eating meat overnight, but becoming completely vegan, it's usually a slower journey. And I think everyone has, you know, his or her own journey. So you never know how people are going to get there. But I feel as writers and publishers, you know, we try to use every means possible. And um, if that means just, I remember we, we took a trip, John and I, and it was kind of a group tour we were in Tasmania and on like a hiking and camping expedition and it was great. And we were the only vegans in the group. There are about, I think eight of us. And I just remember people learning that we were vegan and sort of like deflating a little bit. And then happy hour came along and we were just, you know, it's, you know, all having wine and beer. And they were, they said, you drink? <laughs> they, thought, <laughs> they thought we couldn't be fun because we ate vegan food. And the, the you know, we, the vegan food that we ate, they tried, they liked. I mean, and one of the things that I do that I think is the most positive thing is just to share vegan food with people. And that's really gone a long way with friends I have who, um, I have several friends who weren't vegan when I met them who are now or mostly and they certainly always are when I'm there in my presence. But it's been really wonderful to see 
the evolution of people who like just by silently I'll ask answer any question that people ask, but I don't really go out there and say like why are you eating that burger? <laughs> why do you do you know how that cheese got to your plate? Something like that. Yeah. But um, just cooking a Beyond Burger for someone or making a vegan dessert that's delicious, and then letting people know like oh did you know that well, you know that's vegan? It's um, it really goes a long way because it just sort of you know, shows them that it doesn't have to be bland, horrible food, yeah. which weirdly, even now, a lot of people still think that. Yeah, absolutely. There, there is still that, that misconception. Um, yeah. And there's a, there's a growing misconception as well that I think there's, there's either bland, very sort of pious sort of food, if you like, versus the... Yes. <laughs> Um, versus vegan junk food you know there's this kind of that that's it that there's there's no happy medium and actually like 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 you say there there is there are so many so many what just like there are so many ways to eat omnivorously there's so many ways to eat vegan you yeah. can you can you know different cultures different different traditions there's all kinds of different things so i love that that idea of we've got to um almost showing people that helps break down some of those stereotypes that it's not just either this way, that way, and and either it's boring or unhealthy, and there's no in the there's no in between. Of course, there is. You know? Right. Yeah, I, I want to go right back to the beginning, if that's all right, because uh, there was a question I wanted to to pick up on, but I, I got excited by another another question that popped into my mind when you were talking, and just a subject that interested me. But um, let's go right back to um, Antarctica and your initial kind of that initial kind of pivot point, the point where you started to think, actually, there's something wrong here. W was there anybody guiding you to that on that trip? Or, or was this just kind of, we're observing this, we're putting two and two together and and kind of making four? Or was there was there somebody there who was kind of saying, well, actually, this is happening because of X, Y, and Z? A little of both, actually. So it was a it was a an expedition where we had naturalists on the on the ship, and um, to teach us about the wildlife. No one made a point about not eating fish. They served fish on board, and as a matter of fact, which mm. we found kind of <laughs> yeah. appalling, you yeah. know, in retrospect. Um, but but you know, it's an interesting thing that that I bring up in my novel, in My Last Continent, um, in in this. The novel that I wrote, the character is a penguin researcher, but she is um, she goes to Antarctica on tour ships. That's how she funds her research, or that's how she gets to Antarctica. She's kind of an independent researcher. And um, that's based on an actual organization called Oceanides. And when we were on the trip that we were on, we met several people who you know, they worked for this organization and they would um, be naturalists on board and that's how they got to Antarctica. So they would travel down to Antarctica, the Antarctic Peninsula with us, and then they, we'd leave them there and they'd camp for several weeks, study the penguins, and then another, um, another tour group would pick them up and take them back north. So I was really inspired by that because I thought that was so interesting. You know, this is, mm -hmm. there are research stations in Antarctica, but that are mostly, you know, that are run by various governments around the globe. But this was an independent organization. I thought that was so wonderful that they're there doing this independent penguin research, counting penguins. So, but the interesting thing about that, which I explore in my novel, is that that dichotomy that you've got between tourism and, and protecting this continent. Yeah. So, 
in the novel, you know, my character has a real problem with this. They serve seafood on board because that's what the guests expect. And yet she has to go along with that to get down to Antarctica to study the birds. And by studying them, she can then let people know what their numbers are, how their species are doing. And the numbers show that they're not, they're traveling farther and farther for their food because we're fishing, you know, in their oceans. And a lot of the Antarctic is protected. Um, but, you know, as Paul Watson said on your podcast, mm. when an area is protected, that's where the poachers go yep. because that's where the fish is. And that's the, that's a really sad reality. And that's why we are grateful that Sea Shepherds, you know, the Sea Shepherd Society is out doing what they're doing. But, um, but yeah, tourism is a whole other thing. And it's a very, very, very interesting. But um, to get back to your question, we, we learned a lot about it, but not in the same way that we took home with us. You know, that no right. one said, don't eat fish. It's not good for the birds. <laughs> you know, it's not good for the whales to take the krill out of the ocean. Um, but we got back and, you know, and thought about that and realized they, you know, this is what's going on. And they, they can't do that because they're trying to, you know, take passengers to see this this world and and I don't have a problem with tourism because it changed our lives and I think it has the power to to change lives and if you if you know if even half of the people who go to Antarctica come back and don't eat seafood or make major changes in their lives to to help combat climate change that's worthwhile so I even though more and more tourists are going there it's more than double the number that it was back when we went. So it's really growing in a way that is not going to be sustainable forever. But right now, the bigger problems facing that region are pollution and overfishing and climate change. So if people can come back and be ambassadors for the continent, then that's, you know, one way to combat those other bigger issues. Absolutely. It's, it's a real difficult one, that, isn't it? The, 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 the tourism, yeah. the travel one. I've wrestled this before myself. I've spoken to some folks in the sort of, you know, vegan travel companies and so on. And I wrestle between flying, traveling to places, all these kind of different things, the carbon footprint, the damage of that versus the, like you say, the messages you bring back, the lessons you... It, it's It's a real difficult one to know which way to to fall and without doing that calculation you, you raise an interesting point there about you know if 50% came back and and this happened would that justify would that almost pay the the price of those folks going there it's where how do you calculate it it's so difficult i know i wish i could it would be great to be able to do that um and i'm not sure that even 50% come back as changed as we mm. did it's, it's really hard to know. And I agree with you about travel because that's, you know, we, we have a really small carbon footprint, footprint overall in everything we do, but travel is, is just what we love so much. And, you know, we haven't gone anywhere for more than two years with the mm. pandemic. So, you know, we've been homebound for a while, but we do feel like when we do go anywhere, it has to, it ha we have to be able to justify it. It has to yeah. be, you know, it has to be worth it. It has to be something that um, needs to be done for a certain reason and, you know, and not just do it frivolously, mm. you know, because it does matter. It's consciousness, isn't it? Like with absolutely, when you become vegan, it's a conscious decision about what you're going to do three times a day, um, yeah. you know, on your, at your dinner table. And, and it, it, I, I do find 
from that was a jump off point for all kinds of different questions in in my life and it's still going now i still i still um i think i've talked about on the podcast before about like bank accounts and things you know like not realizing at first you know that this bank account that i had that that company put x amount of money into fossil fuel companies and uh, companies who supported animal agriculture and so like okay so which banks don't and how do I and then you find they're sort of somewhere they're underwritten by somebody else and it's it's a it's a messy world to take this personal action isn't it it is and I totally agree and that's what um Athena's book that's what my days of dark green euphoria <laughs> does so well mm. is it just captures that eco anxiety and I've been there I remember being in Seattle right around the time, I mean, I think it was just before eating my very last piece of cheese, but, you know, right when we were almost 99% vegan and, um, I, we were living downtown Seattle. I walked over to Whole Foods to get some groceries. And I remember having that anxiety where I saw this wonderful vegan food, prepared foods, and it was beautiful. And I was really excited about getting all this vegan stuff, but it all came in little plastic tubs. Yeah. And I freaked out about the plastic. And I thought, I can't do this plastic. You know, I can't buy something that comes in plastic, you know. Yeah. And so I, I think I left without even like a carrot stick. I mean, I think I just, <laughs> I, I got so overwhelmed. <laughs> I just left the store. And so I had that little moment of absolute madness. And that's what um, this novel captures really well is that you, you can go so crazy. And if yeah. you want to be the best person you can and be the best steward for the planet, you have those moments, you go there. And then it's all about finding the balance though, you know, mm. and doing what you can and realizing that none of us can be absolutely perfect, but we can do the most good or the least harm, if you will. Yeah. But it's it's impossible to be perfect. So we have to find that that balance somehow, which can be really difficult, as you say. Once you once you learn one thing, you learn another and it goes on and on. <laughs> you just keep going down the rabbit hole and <laughs> it doesn't stop. That's the that's the problem. Exactly. <laughs> that's the problem. Uh, you, you mentioned COVID. Uh, we were talking about travel just then. Mm-hmm. I, 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 it might be a naive question. You might go, not at all. But I, I, how, how's it affected publishing uh, and, and the kind of the... The, the literary industry? Has it, has it had much of an impact, positive or negative? A little of both, actually. So um, in the beginning, you know, everything kind of came to a screeching halt. And, and we had a lot of shutdowns here. So bookstores suffered a lot because people couldn't go in. And um, there was a lot of disruption in the early days of the pandemic. But then as things went on, as the pandemic dragged on, um, you know, bookstores got online and learned to sell things through their, you know, online stores. And um, publishing slowed down a lot just because people weren't taking submissions and, and getting new books out. And then right. supply chain issues have caused a lot of delays. But I think on the whole, it's been pretty even, if not a little better for books and mm. publishing because people are reading more. You know, yeah. I know that, that, you know, social media, Netflix, there's so many ways to compete for people's time and books um, in the last decade have been, you know, getting smaller and smaller in terms of the, you know, greater scheme of things. But the pandemic did help, you know, book sales have, have um, been up overall because 
people are home and people are reading. So that's very good. And events are a problem for a lot of readers. I mean, for a lot of writers, excuse me, who have books coming out and book tours and live events, um, whether it's conferences or book festivals, those have all suffered quite a bit, but they've also gone online Mm -hmm. and there have been a lot of new opportunities for writers and publishers. Um, One thing that we did, which wouldn't have happened without the pandemic is we started a class called writing for animals, which is something we've wanted to do for a long time. And we envisioned it as a conference, but weren't sure how that was going to look and what, you know, how we would do that. So we were putting it off and um, it's based on a book that we published in, I think 2018 called writing for animals, which is just a series of essays and articles about how writers can portray animals more authentically, more empathetically, more compassionately, more realistically in their writing. And, and you know, like a pro animal writing book where animals aren't, you know, um, afterthoughts, for example, or props. And so that, that's a work that we really love. And then, and so with everybody learning zoom and and it being (laughs) becoming so easy, we decided to put it out there and have a class. And so we did it, I think three times last year and now it's online. So a self-paced version of it is online. So people can do it anytime, anywhere. And that was something really positive for us to come out of that as a small publisher. What a fantastic resource to offer. I love that. That's amazing. And, And a great subject matter as well. We have loved it. And every time we teach the class, we, we just tell the, the writers, participating writers, this, we love this even more than you do, you know, because <laughs> the feedback has been wonderful. So it's nice to know that the people, there are people who love animals, who want to advocate for animals in their writing, and we're helping them to do that. But we get so much out of it, just that sense of community, which is really important, as you know, you know, as a, as a, as a vegan, as an animal activist in our own way, you know, that's really lovely to see, to come together with people who want to do that and who want to advocate, become literary activists in a way. And so it's been a beautiful thing. And we've done a couple open mics with the alumni, you know, and uh, we've got another, you know, we've got more ideas in the works to just keep the alumni community going and to keep offering the class and, um, you know, maybe additional classes with other people. It's going to be good. And it was nice to see that the audience is there for it. So we were glad to be able to do it. Oh, it's amazing. It really is. Uh, that was gonna, actually going to be a question of mine, and you, you may have started to answer it there, which was, it, as one of the impacts of, of COVID, the shutdowns and so on, has it been? Has there been an uptick in submissions and, 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 and budding writers coming to you? A little bit. So we, we do have submission periods. Um, so we're not open to submissions year round or we would just drown in reading. Right. So we have to do it um, at certain times of the year and for certain projects. And But one thing, we did um, just close the Siskiyou Prize. One thing, I forget what year it was. I think we founded it in 2015 or something. We started this award for environmental writing and it's called the Siskiyou Prize for New Environmental Literature. And we put the new in there to make clear that this is environmental writing that doesn't have to do with like hunting and fishing and using animals, because a lot of environmental writing actually is about that, you know, people write an essay about fishing with a family member and they think they're being one with nature and they are in their own way, but Mm -hmm. we don't want our, you know, environmental writing to be about taking from nature, but about protecting nature. So, so that's the goal of the, the prize. And so it's for, 
any full-length manuscript um, across many genres. And we did get a record number of submissions this year. I think that for, you know, it's in every two years we have this award and it comes with a cash prize and a writing residency. We partner with um, a, a, a residency in Oregon. It's an organization that offers um, space for writers and classes and workshops called the Sitka Center. Um, and they're wonderful. They're up in a little bit north of us in Oregon. This is Gideon. He's deciding to get oh. up, I wonder. No, he's not going to see us. Hey. He's just going to change his little <laughs> sleeping position. Oh, fair um, enough. So anyway, so the Siskiyou Prize, we did notice that we got a lot more submissions for that this time around. And it might have been because of the pandemic. But from what I've heard from others in the publishing industry is that, yeah, writers are dusting off their manuscripts and sending them out. So I think in the years to come, you know, my hope is that we'll see a lot of good animal writing and environmental writing out there. Yeah, and I, I suppose like... You know, publishing companies like like yours are almost giving people the permission, the the sort of almost saying there is a home for you here, um, which is I imagine in part the kind of the the license that people need to get going in this space. I hope so. Yes, I do, and I I hope that you know we can only do so much. We we receive far more then we can ever publish. And that's the only thing is that we are too small to publish all the good environmental work that's out there. So I do hope that people, that our existence helps people work on their environmental writing. And I hope they keep sending it out everywhere because there are mm. certainly, there are a lot of independent presses out there. And even the big five have hundreds of imprints. And I just hope that the momentum keeps going for environmental writing and then even more so for animal writing. How have things, I mean, you mentioned it a little bit at the beginning, but how, how, sort of you know the, the three or four things that you think have kind of tangibly changed since you set out on this journey as a as a publisher in the environmental space particularly well there are definitely more there's definitely more room for environmental writing the term cli-fi came out after <laughs> we started our our, our press so Climate fiction. Yeah, yeah, I love it. It's wonderful. <laughs> so there are um, another thing that we do is called Ecolit Books. And it's sort of a, well, it's become a lot more than it, you know, over the years. It started out as a book review site where we would publish book reviews of all environmental literature, um, not just what we publish, which is only a few books a year, but, you know, all sorts of environmental works, including old classes, uh, classic classics, excuse me, including old classics like um, The Monkey Wrench Gang, for example. We have a review of that. And and so it's um, just a place to go to learn more about environmental literature. And so we have about half a dozen active contributors who who write reviews on books, children's books, young adult, fiction, nonfiction. And that's really great. But there are several of those out there. Um, Climate Fiction Writers League is one example. Um, they, they support writers who are writing in climate fiction and could be young adult, could be children's books. So there are a lot of sites out there as we've seen them crop up. There are more, a couple of independent, you know, environmental publishers out there. There are vegan publishers as well, but none that I am aware of that publish fiction. So I think we're the only ones who right. really published, you know, that fiction novels and short stories. But it's been nice to see all of that evolve in a positive way. And there are even a few books out there that are very animal rights oriented that the big publishers have done. One of which is Karen Joy Fowler's novel, We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves. That's um, very much an animal rights novel. 
what else? Oh, a new novel. I mean, they came out in the last couple of years called Barn 8 by Deb Olin Unferth. Um, she happened to be our, our Siskiyou Prize judge this year. Um, she's a vegan writer, and this book is about a chicken rescue. And I was just amazed and thrilled to see that that came out. It came out from an independent press called Gray Wolf Press, but that's a huge publisher compared to us. So I thought that was a really big step forward to have sort of, you know, this animal rights novel about a chicken rescue from a pretty big publisher. So yeah, things are evolving in the right direction, I think. Sounds like it. Absolutely. You've obviously been in publishing for a fair while and been a writer for, for a fair while too. From all of the connections you've made over the course of time, has anybody reached out to you from the kind of the the big five, the the perhaps the the sort of the non-vegan or non-environmental kind of space, the the sort of more mainstream publishing world or writing world, and and sort of asked you about what you're doing? Have you noticed any of that in recent years? Like people sort of mm-hmm. saying, you know, I'm kind of interested in this space. What what is it that you do? Kind of now now I'm a bit more open to it. You know, not yet. I have not had that experience yet. We get a lot of, you know, we get a lot of um, students who are interested in publishing, Mm. but they're interested in the, you know, not so much environmental publishing. So we do hear from writers who are really interested in environmental publishing. Um, You know, they might contact us outside of our submission period and say, where, where can we go? And, you know, we try to point them to the resources that we have on Ecolit Books. So Ecolit Books is for readers, but it's also for writers. We have a lot of um, opportunities for writers and and lists of magazines and other publishers that publish environmental writing. So, you know, there's curiosity from writers and readers, but not so much from the publishing industry that I've seen. No one's reached out to us to say, tell us more about your environmental (laughs) publishing. So, but they are doing more of it. That's kind of interesting. And that might though. just be a coincidence. I don't know. Yeah, I think I think this. It feels like it's the the verge of it. You know, like that. We we've, we've yeah. seen this sort of thing in so many other spaces. That places that you wouldn't expect an environmental message, an animal rights message, a vegan message that even the word vegan to pop up, and it's starting to. So it it, it just wouldn't. It just from speaking to other people in different industries. There's been a bit of that I've I've noticed that them sort of saying that people who were previously resistant to them or had previously sort of shut the door and said, no, we, we don't want to get involved in what you're doing, have sort of come back and said, actually, what was it again? <laughs> so I'm kind of, I, I, I feel like it might be on the verge. I hope so. I hope so. I hope so too. And I think, I think films like Don't Look Up bring these things, you know, and celebrity vegans, um, that that's a slippery slope because so many celebrities go vegan and and then change their minds and actually john has a mm. really funny play called veganish that's about just that <laughs> about a celebrity vegan that gets caught eating a burger at a restaurant right. and one of one of his fans calls him out on it it's just a short play about this dramatic little moment but i also think that you know the more people um, the more we see it, and, and if, if people who are trendsetters embrace it, then more people just wake up and pay attention and start doing it. And, you know, um, as a small boutique publisher, we're not big trendsetters, but we're just going to keep doing it. I'm, I'm surprised we're still, I'm not surprised we're still here. It doesn't surprise me at all, <laughs> but I think it surprises most people. I remember when we first started it, oh, we got, people thought just straight up told us we were crazy to start a publishing company. Yeah. Um, in 2011 and here we are so and we're gonna we're gonna be here for you know till the end of time so (laughs) you know eventually people will discover this and um 
you know, but it's not so much about discovering us, but just discovering this literature and, and getting the word out there about, you know, saving animals. Well, more power to you for not only starting a publishing company, but front and center saying, you know, not being not being shy about saying we're, we're vegans and we want to talk about environmental issues and that. Like, uh, I can imagine that combination of things, if you'd have asked one of your contacts in the mainstream publishing world, they would have said, you, you really are crazy. Like, not, not only starting a publishing company, but but nailing your colours to the mast. So I, I say more power to you. I think it's incredible. <laughs> um, Thank you. Yeah, that would, you do double down on the crazy in some people's <laughs> minds, though. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I th- I think it's uh, there's that, that old TED talk about the lone nut, you know, and people and people start to to join them on the on the hillside. I'm I'm I I feel like it that that's that's the way things are things are going. We've seen it in so many different. Uh, industries, you know, maybe food's probably the most obvious pioneering sort of space. But you know, obviously, we're in Veganuary right now as we as we're talking, yeah. and um, we're seeing, um, you know, we're seeing the word all over the. I saw that. I, I don't know if you have compare the market over in the US. Do you have that? Is that a thing? I don't know. Oh. No. So it's <laughs> it's, uh, the, the, it's kind of a, an irrelevancy, really, that compare the market itself. But it's it's a it's a business over here that essentially like allows you to compare things like um, you know energy bills and energy suppliers okay. and telephone bills and it, all these kind of things. Anyway, they they ran this whole advert on which was about is veganism expensive, and um, somebody I know who's in in this sort of marketing business was was sort of overjoyed with it because although there was a question mark there the the whole point was this was this is a company who have no business talking about veganism at all normally you know it's not it's not nothing to do with it but they're they're talking about it and it's just a sign of it's in the the zeitgeist it's in the conversation people are people are thinking and making these connections even on the um i know we've referenced don't look up a lot but the don't look up website has connections to what you can eat it doesn't squarely say be vegan but it essentially says more that if you eat more plants and you eat less meat so you know you can do the maths it's, um, yeah is essentially that's what it is saying so it's um it's there i think and i think the more spaces we pop up in the the better really <laughs> Absolutely. I completely agree. And I think we saw that need in books, you know, Mm. where people aren't like reading vegan and it's um, the subtlety of it works really well in fiction, you know, to have a vegan character, you know, in my last continent, um, my character is is pretty subtly vegan, you know, it doesn't come up Mm. a lot. Um, and then her romantic interest is vegan as well, which was which is a big deal for her to find someone in her world. <laughs> My experience in you know on this expedition and working with scientists for the research I did for the book is that very few scientists are vegan or even vegetarian. Mm. So that was interesting and, and it played out in the book a little bit. But I think yeah, the more it just kind of comes up in mainstream everything, you know. This is a good thing. It's all good. I love that normalization. You know, the, the, just the subtlety yeah. of it. It's just a. It's not. It's not her character. It's just a thing that is part of her character. You know, I think that's that. What a great way to express it to people in a non-judgmental, non-scary kind of way. But will definitely leave a mark. You know, will get you thinking. You know, oh, oh yeah, they're they're vegan. And what, why was it a big deal that they, they were trying to find another vegan? Like, you know, as we all know, who are in the world, it is <laughs> is a big deal. 
know. Yeah, um, exactly. There's literally vegan dating apps now, and you know these kind of things. Yes. So you know, it's it's just definitely a big deal, hundred percent. So um, yeah, I, you know, again, I think what a what a wonderful way to sort of be an activist, really. You know, activists come in all forms, and 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 fiction, and writing, and publishing is certainly an area that we could we could all do with more more of a vegan touch so <laughs> thank you for that <laughs> well thank you for saying that i love that <laughs> look t- time is time is getting on but i want to absolutely okay. make sure that folks know um where to find ashton creek um where to get a copy of that amazing new novel coming out in february um and 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 where to where to get in touch if maybe if they've got a submission i don't know if i, I don't want to overburden you with submissions but no, <laughs> if, no worries if you're outside of a submission deadline you don't have to share that bit but <laughs> if you're if you're close <laughs> to one or you'd like to then then do feel free so people can find us at ashlandcreekpress.com and there you can find Athena's book, My Days of Dark Green Euphoria. It comes out February 1st. So um, if people are hearing this before the 1st, it's available for pre-order. So they can pre-order it from any number of retailers. And you can buy it through our website or, again, your favorite bookstore, favorite retailer online. It'll be available everywhere. And it's actually available throughout the world. So it doesn't matter where you live. Um, It's English only, but um, it's available everywhere. So that comes out shortly. And um, submissions, everything's on the website. You just have to explore a little. We're close to submissions right now, but you have a mailing list that people can join if they want to know when we open up again. So it's just ashlandcreekpress.com. Wonderful stuff. Well, I'll get writing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. Rich, thank you so much for your time. It's been amazing listening to uh, listening to your journey, and um, and like I said a, a couple of times, but more power to you for for being vegan in this space. I really appreciate you. Thank you so much. I appreciate you and your wonderful podcast, and it's an honor to be here. So thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much, Rich. Bye now. Thank you. Bye bye. This is a bloody vegans production. The music in this episode comes from the album Conversations with a Willow Tree by Khan. You can search for Khan and the new album Conversations with a Willow Tree over on Bandcamp or wherever you get your albums. I've been feeling tired, I don't feel normal A branch handed me a coffee bean, I entered into a portal They said, what you consume is your medicine Stop treating symptoms, find a cure for your betterment Here's some marshmallow for the cough and broccoli for the lungs And some kale for those prime times you smoked when you were young Here's some turmeric for that swelling and inflammation And here's some ginkgo tea to remember this information Here's some curry for the pancreas and saffron for the brain And some rhodiola tea to ease the mental pain Fight the blues with some greens, here's some seeds for serotonin Here's some cabbage for the kidneys and goji for melatonin Here's some radish for warmth and ginger for the stomach Here's some ashwagandha for when your spirit plummets Here's some walnuts for the mind and has some ginseng Here's some sorrel for a salad and one more thing <laughs>